Hello, it's Tuesday, September the 26th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here in the heart of the Stanford University campus, Michael Oslin. He's the inaugural Williams Griffith Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution, where he specializes in global risk analysis, U.S. security and foreign policy strategy, as well as security and political relations in Asia. He's also a best-selling author, and his latest book, The End of the Asian Century, War, Stagnation, and the Risk of the World's Most Dynamic Region, is available. I recommend you pick it up. He's a longtime contributor to the Wall Street Journal and National Review, and his writing appears in such publications as The Atlantic, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, and Politico. And he is here today for the second of two podcasts on Asia. Michael, thanks for hanging in today with us. Thanks for having me again. You have been to China. I have not. Uh, some people listening to this podcast have been. I suspect many have not. It is a long distance to travel. Uh, some people do it in retirement, some people for business. When you get off the plane in China, what hits you first? Besides, obviously, my God, I've been on a plane for a long time. Uh, yeah, you, I think you get hit uh, by the, um, the pollution often. Uh, you know, you land and it looks like it's midday, or I'm sorry, midnight, and yet it's midday. Um, there is just the vast expanse of the land that you've been flying over to, uh, to land in. Uh, and I think if you, you know, I'm a historian, so if you have any, you know, if you have any historical sense, you, you really, you know, you really get sort of wrapped up in the idea of, of you've landed in the midst of what is a great civilization, mm -hmm. uh, but one that, that poses particular challenges for us today. So there's a lot of things, I think, that go through people's minds when they get there. But it's also, I think, what happens really quickly is a little bit like the, um, uh, the you know, the parable about the blind men and the elephant. You know, everybody's coming to China for a different reason, and so the, what they get out of it, what they see, and what they bring back to talk about is always a little bit different from each other. Right. Uh, my apologies to those of you listening who speak Mandarin, but I'm about to butcher the Chinese language. But apparently the official Chinese media, Michael, refers to Trump as, and here's where I'm going to butcher it, Tang Na Dei Te Long Pu, which means literally Internet Celebrity. You dig deeper and you find that Trump is also referred to, Michael, as Sichuan Putonghua, which literally means Mandarin with a Sichuan accent, which means a hick, I guess, a rube. Right. What, what did the Chinese make of Donald Trump? Well, I think they haven't encountered a president like him before. Um, well, actually, let's back this up a second. Yeah. It's a country of, what is it now, 1.2, 1.5 billion? Uh, it's, it's about 1.3 billion. 1.3 billion. Um, India is probably a little bit bigger now. Um, it's hard to get exact figures. So but what, what it's going to be shrinking soon. So what percentage of the 1.3 billion, Michael, have either seen Celebrity Apprentice, <laughs> understand what a, what a developer is, know Donald Trump, have seen the hair? Just how many Chinese really know who this guy well, is? Well, I think they've seen Donald Trump. And uh, right. the Chinese have, have, you know, have a lot of access to global information they may not have right. um, you know there are restrictions on internet searches mostly related to China less related to the United States mm -hmm. um, there is a an enormous um, number there are somewhere around 650 maybe 700 million mm -hmm. internet users that we know of maybe even more than that right. in China uh, they use all sorts of different forms I mean the, the Communist Party the government is cracking down but this is not a this is not a nation or a people starved for information. So they've seen Trump. Obviously, they saw uh, video and pictures of him with their president Xi Jinping uh, in in California uh, or, or wherever they met. I'm sorry, Florida, where they met. Um, they they know him. 
but they've never probably seen a president like him. Of course, you know, a lot of people uh, feel that way. And this was the first candidate to bash China as heavily and regularly as, as he did. Uh, he was certainly the first after his election and before the inauguration during the transition period to continue. You know, usually the presidents, such as Bill Clinton, who called the, the Chinese leadership back then the butchers of Beijing, very quickly right. changed their tune to, to get to what they thought would be a cooperative relationship. So, so the phrase Trump used in 2016 in the camp, he would, he would accuse China of, quote, greatest thefts in the history of the world and what they've done to our country. Exactly. Uh, Alternatively, though, he us. would say, I love China. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it was Trump, right? So there was this the, a lot of back and forth in terms of what he was saying one day, tweeting the next day and the like. But consistently, they saw someone who was threatening to take real economic action. And then most concerningly, I think, to the Chinese mm -hmm. was that he explicitly linked the the areas of economics and trade with politics and security, which which U.S. presidents had been very careful to separate. You know, he took a phone call during the transition from the Taiwanese president, which had never been done. Uh, he talked very openly about why should I work with China if they're not going to give me a good deal. Right. So they didn't know what to expect. Since then, however, they've seen a sort of swinging back and forth in the administration where Trump uh, began to back down very quickly, met Xi Jinping, talked right. about all the great stuff they could do together, um, talked about cooperation, and then again, uh, especially on North Korea, and then again swinging back where he said, they're not helping me, so now we're going to put, you know, we're going to sanction some of their banks and some of their, uh, potentially some of their individuals. Uh, he, he's been, he's really been swinging, swinging back and forth. And now we're sort of in this, this uh, moment where uh, the administration has said, we're going to pursue some trade related actions. You know, Steve Mnuchin mm -hmm. talked about um, certain um, actions as, as did the USTR, the US trade representative. And it's just, um, I think, above all, they feel that there's they probably feel, and others do, that there's a lack of consistency. Let's talk about another Steve, and that's Steve Bannon, Michael. Yeah. And he wrote in American Prospect magazine, he claimed China is at, quote, his words, economic war with the United States. And he also predicted China will be, quote, a hegemon in 25 to 30 years if the United States doesn't reconsider trade and economic relationships. Agree or disagree? Well, I, I partly agree with the first and disagree with the second. Uh, in terms of becoming a hegemon, China's big, China's powerful. China has enormous problems, however, and we have not paid enough attention to the problems that it faces. Mm -hmm. um, we've had one story about China. I tried to write about this a lot in, in the, that book of mine you mentioned came out earlier this year. We've had sort of one story about linear growth. But I think that that era is really rapidly coming to a close. And it's not that China's not going to be big and important, but it's not going to be the 12-foot-tall economy right. or even political player that we thought. You know, the macroeconomic growth has slowed dramatically. It has an enormous debt problem. It has a labor shortage, believe it or not, because of the one-China policy. It's going to be a huge pollution problem. Uh, there's real questions about its its ability to innovate, which is why it demands that foreign companies turn over their intellectual property. Um, China faces a lot of difficulties going forward. On the first part of Bannon's comment, though, he's not the first one to say that China is a mercantilist power that seeks to maximize its gain. It doesn't view trade as a win-win. Um, he, you know, it's just Bannon. So what he said was was uh, particularly controversial. But there's a lot of people uh, who believe that. I mean, you look at the statements coming out of the American Chamber of Commerce in China have have changed pretty dramatically over the past five years. Mm -hmm. There's a Chinese program called Made in China 2025, uh, which also used to be known or or at least was connected to a previous program called Indigenous Innovation, which basically says here are the the top 15 areas where we're going to be a world leader. 
we're pouring enormous amounts of money into them, but any foreign companies that are doing business with us that have this type of technology and, and the like, they're going to have to turn it over if you want to do business here. It's a very, it's very blatant. Um, uh, the, the lack of intellectual property right protection, the blatant theft, all of this we've known for a very long time. Uh, and so Bannon uh, is not alone in saying this, and he's he's not wrong. Is it you know is it open warfare? I think that goes a little too far. The Chinese understand that they need us and they need our market, mm -hmm. but they've never experienced an America that was willing, willy, uh, I'm sorry, that was really willing to defend its markets uh, and and defend its own interests, even as it tried to build trade. So they thought they had a free hand. You can have it both, and up till now they have. You have read Henry Kissinger's book on China, which is called On China. You've read it. Yeah, most of it, not all right. of it, but yeah. All right, so Kissinger has this passage. He wrote, quote, Chinese thinkers developed strategic thought that placed a premium on victory through psychological advantage and preached the avoidance of direct conflict. Michael, here we are sitting in September 2017, and China would seem to be on direct conflict with the United States on at least three fronts. One, we just talked about economics. The second is military. They are growing their navy. They developed a blue water navy. We've sent forces over in the South China Sea, and it, there's going to be a conflict sooner or later over, over who has domain in that realm. And then the third, which we just talked on the previous uh, podcast, is North Korea. Do you agree with what Kissinger wrote? Do you think the Chinese really want to avoid direct conflict? If they do, then why have they taken these courses of action? So I, I think that the Chinese feel that um, Open conflict is not in their interest now. They still feel weak. Of course, they want to tell us that they're weak so we don't take them as, as much of a threat as they are. Um, but they worry that they would not, you know, they, they could not survive the closing off of the American market. They could not survive a, a, a war with us, although that gap, I think, is shrinking pretty, pretty rapidly if you're talking about conflict in just in localized in, uh, in East Asian waters, for example. It, it, it's getting to be a tighter competition there. Right. Um, but they clearly see themselves in a conflictual, competitive uh, relationship with the United States. And as they have grown in power, especially over the last decade, they have been far more willing to press up against the limits of, of what is or is not acceptable. So the idea that it's all Sun Tzu and, you know, um, hide your talons and bide your time and, you know, win without fighting and the like, uh, you know, that, that's all well and good. It, you know, if you want to sort of, you know, get some sort of cultural approach to China. But um, but the reality is that we've seen as they've become stronger, they've been, they have been, again, far more willing to challenge us in areas, uh, economic areas, such as by developing their own uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, their own trade relations, uh, obviously the one belt and one road. On the security side, building islands and militarizing their possessions in the South China Sea and building up a, a military that is really designed to take out the United States military. You have to ask who do they think is, you know, why do they really feel there's a threat? Uh, and so the, the competitive aspect is, is there, and it's, it's sliding into a conflictual approach. Now, I would say, though, when push comes to shove, the Chinese still back down. Um, in some ways. I mean, they're not backing down in the South China Sea and saying we're giving up our islands. But, you know, when, when they harass our Navy ships, which they do, which they've done with regularity, they, they back down after a while. They steal our drone. They give it back. Um, they, they continue to uh, harass the Japanese around the Senkakus, uh, which is in the East China Sea. Um, but they, they, have, they have yet to really fully cross the line, certainly against a major power like Japan or the United States. 
Uh, should Americans care about a country named Djibouti? Well, they should in, in the sense that it's more indicative of what the Chinese are doing uh, in expanding Expl abroad. Yeah, so Djibouti is located on, in the Horn of Africa area. It's become a um, essentially a, a base for foreign militaries to, uh, to do anti-piracy operations around, around the Horn of Africa, Arabian Sea, Red Sea, even into the Indian Ocean. Um, the Japanese uh, are leasing their first foreign base since World War II there. Um, but the Chinese have built a massive base. They've basically bribed uh, the government there, and they've taken over. Uh, I mean, bribed, and they've given them money. But you know, it's 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 clearly to allow them to build a a massive base, which they keep talking about is 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 for commercial purposes, as they talk about with Pakistan, as they talk about with Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. and other places. And it it's it's really to allow them to have military access, which is what they ultimately wind up saying. Uh, and it's a symbol of, of China's growing power projection. Um, they regularly transit the Indian Ocean now. The Indians are probably the most worried about that. Um, they transit out into the Western Pacific through the strategic passages, um, the strategic straits and waterways that are near Japan, and obviously you know, through the um, Malacca Strait and Sunda Strait. Um, this is not a coastal navy anymore. Uh, this is a blue water navy. Now, it's also a Navy that doesn't have that much experience. It's a Navy that doesn't have any combat experience. Um, a lot of the military attaches that I've talked with in Beijing are, are pretty agnostic about the strength, the ultimate strength. It looks impressive. Right. But they don't have, you know, they don't have good crisis control capabilities, fire control, you know, ships, you know, be able to, to save a ship that's taken a hit, you know, how well trained. We're still, I think, uh, we're still trying to figure out how good their NCO core is. You know, that's really the, the backbone of our military. And in China, their NCO core rotates out much more quickly. It's not, uh, it's not the professionalism that we have here. Um, so there are, there are questions. Now, that's all comparative, though, right? Compared to almost any other Asian nation, the Chinese have a superior military, uh, except maybe Japan. Size-wise, of course, but, right. you know, quality. And so that's really where that competition comes in. It's not, it's, it is with us, Bill, but it, it's more with the other Asian nations because if, you know, we're not going to step in every time that, you know, that the Philippines has a, has a tussle with, with China. In fact, we've, we've stayed out of it and we've stayed out of it with, um, with um, Vietnam. We've stayed out of it with, um, with a lot of these, a lot of these different, in Malaysia and others. So the real question is how far can China go in getting its way, becoming dominant, becoming a hegemon vis-a-vis -vis the other Asian nations. Because if it does that, then it forecloses opportunities for us to act as, right. as, a, as a dominant power. Um, and then there's that whole question of, you know, providing the public goods. You know, we look at the U.S. Navy as ensuring freedom of the seas and freedom of navigation and the like. Um, China's, we have no idea to the degree to which China's interested in that. But if that's the role we play, then what we're, in a way, what we're ultimately going to be doing is guaranteeing China the ability to go around and increase its influence in, in this region. So I think it's the, it's the other countries that really are the major, um, the major feature of China's conflictual approach. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's putting effort because it ultimately it winds up freezing us out. Right. Um, and while China is looking around the globe, they have to pay attention to matters closer to home, one country in particular. Let me read you what a wise man wrote about this earlier this month in writing about the Chinese leader. He said, quote, if Xi Jinping is serious about helping curb North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, he will drop the idea of new negotiations and instead join the Trump administration in a new policy of deterrence and containment. That author was 
Was that me? That's Michael Oslin. I, I didn't even recognize <laughs> it. <laughs> so, but here's the question, Michael. On the one hand, you're suggesting it's time for China to adopt a new policy toward North Korea, get involved with us, deterrence and containment. But a lot of what we just talked about in terms of military aggression is what benefits from the United States of America being distracted. Well, for sure. I, I, so China's very, um, very concerned about uh, the the way in which the North Korean crisis is actually bringing America even more deeply into Northeast Asia. Right. Now, you said on the previous podcast the concern was, in part, they liked the buffer having North Korea there. But you also read about a looming refugee crisis should North Korea tumble into great disorder. I'm actually less worried about that. I think I think that's a red herring on the part of the Chinese. Okay. If the Chinese government can successfully control 1.3 billion Chinese, I, I'm not. I don't think they're that worried about a couple thousand starving North Koreans, even a hundred thousand mm-hmm. starving North Koreans, and. They could very, I think they could very easily control the North Korean refugee crisis. I think that's a, that's a red herring on their part to say, see, don't, don't push this too much or we're going to have a, this crisis here. And, of course, it would be a crisis, but they're saying we'd be overwhelmed. And right. I just don't think that's the case. Um, but they like having North Korea. They like the buffer. They like that it's a problem for the United States. They do not want and I think will not accept, if possible, a unified democratic Korean Peninsula that leans towards the United States and maybe even Japan, potentially. Right. Uh, they they will do everything they can to stop that. That's why they have not put the real pressure on, on North Korea. But they also don't want us more engaged. They don't want us to have tighter relations. I mean, we, have, we have very tight relations, and they're allies, longstanding allies, South Korea and Japan. But we're getting even closer because of all this, and they don't, they don't like that. They want to try to separate us from the South Koreans, maybe even the Japanese, or isolate us. Mm-hmm. So if I'm Xi Jinping, then I'm thinking, you know, maybe I should try to help out a little bit. And, and so he started ostensibly, right? He started by saying, first of all, we're voting for these sanctions in the UN. We've watered them down, but we're going to vote for them. And now we're going to we're going to uphold them. You know, Trump was boasting the other week that, you know, the Chinese had told their five banks not to do business with North Korea. And um, the Chinese have, have reiterated that. Um, and so that takes the pressure off to a little bit to say, look, we're helping you, America. So let's not go too far. Right. Um, the problem is what we don't see and what we don't know. You know, the Chinese as we know, and as you mentioned earlier, have abetted the North Koreans for decades. Um, they have done everything uh, they can to really water down sanctions, make them ineffective, actually um, uh, just outright ignore them. So even if they are helping right now, today, on this particular set of sanctions on North Korea, what's all the other stuff that they're doing that we don't know about? So they're really playing, you know, they're trying to play a a dual game and how so far they've been they've been successful, whether that continues or not uh, is is an open question because it could be forced out of their hands either by Kim Jong-un or by Donald Trump. How does the Chinese government communicate with the North Korean government? Um, they they have uh, they are a, you know a formal ally as far as as these things go and they have uh, relations um, you know the informal ways were were a lot more powerful. Chang Song Tech, Kim mm-hmm. Jong Un's uncle that he assassinated uh, soon after taking power was probably certainly one of the more important avenues. Um, there are, as far as we know, just regular open diplomatic communications. What we know is that Xi Jinping has requested, summoned, invited, asked Kim Jong-un multiple times to come to China, mm-hmm. and he's refused every time. Which, of course, if I'm Kim Jong-un, that's exactly, I'm not getting on a plane, not getting on a plane to fly to North Korea, and I, I'm probably not even going to get on a, uh, to China, and I'm not going to get on a train to go this is, to, this is to the China. Com- this is a combination of 
of fear of being assassinated oh, if I travel, right. fear of not being welcomed back in the country, something happens. Oh, for sure. Just, yeah. yeah, that you'll go and you'll disappear. Something will happen, a tragic accident. I think what I'm getting at, Michael, is China, look, China obviously is okay with the status quo. It has been for years. The status quo works to them for various reasons. But the extent the two countries talk to each other and China has to convey, okay, you can go this far and you can go this far, but you can't go this far. How is that conveyed? We, we I don't think we really know. I think in, in there are open statements from Chinese foreign ministry and, and um, from senior government officials about don't go too far. Uh, this is, you know, uh, both sides need to calm down or the, the North Koreans are not being, um, you know, productive or, or, you know, acting productively or whatever it is. So they make they make formal statements. Um, I'm sure those are the same messages that are passed to North Korean representatives in China and, and from Chinese representatives in North Korea. But the status quo is changing. And I think that's what worries right. Beijing. That status quo is it's actually not a status quo. A nuclear North Korea and an ICBM-capable North Korea is not a status quo. Now, I don't think China has any real worry about North Korea launching against China, not because Kim Jong-un wouldn't consider it, but because he knows that if he does it, China is going to squash him out of existence let's, in a day. Let's talk about two things that have gone rather unnoticed in the U.S.-China relationship. One is Chinese banks. Over the last look the number here, since 2007, China's four largest banks have quadrupled share of foreign assets, now over a trillion dollars. And this is as European banks retreat, China's leading something of a changing of the guard in global finance. What are these banks up to, Michael? Well, China has wanted for a long time to, uh, to basically reorder uh, the, the global financial system. Mm -hmm. um, in part, they want, uh, it, it's partly it's a prestige thing, partly it is a, uh, a question of, of making it more economically um, efficient for them to trade. So they, the, one of the big goals has always been um, not to have to use dollars in trade, that you can use the renminbi, their currency, directly. Mm -hmm. And the IMF earlier this year, I think it was, yeah, earlier this year, um, included the RMB for the first time in the basket of, of uh, convertible currencies. Now, it, it, it's something that has to go, or reserve currencies, it has to go farther in terms of convertibility, and there's only so far that they're willing to let that go. Um, so there's there's certainly limitations. Um, the markets as well make limitations on on China because of of lack of confidence in the transparency of the financial mm -hmm. system as well as the stability of of the financial system. Um, but China's banks have been a key tool uh, for lending uh, to other countries uh, as part of uh, the the uh, you know, feeding into the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank mm -hmm. to be um, to be a visible symbol of China abroad to abet Chinese mergers and acquisitions uh, and, and essentially to be part of this rearrangement of the global financial architecture. Um, there's real limitations. You know, this is not a transparent banking system. It has enormous, enormous amounts of debt. Right. Um, these are all things that China uh, first of all, they do want to clean it up because they, they want to be economically strong uh, and they want to be economically healthy. Uh, but there are, uh, are limitations to how far that they're, that they're willing to go uh, in terms of transparency, in terms of accountability uh, and the like. Now, again, when you're dealing with a lot of these countries, um, they're, they're happy to take the Chinese money. They don't, they don't really care whether it's official you know, state grants or it's, it's you know, quote-unquote private loans coming from, from Chinese banks. You know, they often come with no no strings attached. There's no accountability. You know, there's no best practices, human rights issues, environmental issues connected to these. Um, and and the, banks are, the banks are a big part of that. And they also see a role 
um, as the Chinese it's slowing but continues to grow, that there's a role that they couldn't play 10 years ago. You know, the Japanese banks were bigger and the American banks were dominant. And they, they feel that it really is their time, that it, this is where the Chinese will prove to the world that their, their economy is dominant. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if you want to play with that economy, you got to play by its rules. You're sitting in the state of California, which is undergoing a vast public construction project, high-speed rail. And it has a problem and that needs tens and tens of billions of dollars to ever materialize. And it has another problem, Michael, and that a Republican Congress, a Republican president, will not give California the money it needs to, 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 to finance high-speed rail. If you're the state of California, do you take money from Chinese banks? If I'm the state of California, I probably do. You do. If I'm the governor, I don't. You do not. Well, I just I think, you know, I, I think the state will probably just see it as a, as a logical thing to do. But if, if it were my call, I don't, I don't think we want to do that. I don't think we want to give. Um, there's always a balance in terms of free trade. Uh, and, for example, just last week, um, the president um, blocked the sale of a semiconductor company mm -hmm. uh, to a, a, a consortium that was basically Chinese-backed. Um, you know, there were Americans involved as well. And so there's always this question of balances. The, the Obama administration blocked the Chinese government from, uh, or Chinese, I'm sorry, Chinese companies that we believed had connections to the government from buying high-tech industries. Mm -hmm. um, now we're in a different phase where you have to say, okay, well, they're not trying to buy a high-tech industry. They just want to build, you know, so do you take the money? I think there are, I think there are still questions. Um, you know, uh, we actually faced this, I think it was first during the Bush years, maybe Clinton years, but I think it was the Bush years, where they started buying big ports, right? And so right. the question was, do you let them in to buy the ports? Mm -hmm. um, and for the most part, we did. Um, and I I'm, I'm don't study ports. I don't know what's changed. But, you know, when you look at them as a competitor, which they are in so many ways, I think it at least raises the bar for saying, you know, you should you should just without question accept this money and accept um, the entree that it gives. And, and there's a good example to look at now, which is Australia. And Australia is going through some real political gyrations because of the degree to which Chinese capital has penetrated not only into the economy, but then also through into the political system and, and, the, um, uh, and even the educational system, where people are saying you can't criticize China in the universities because they give so much money. The politicians are getting money from China. Um, we had some of that during the Clinton years. You know, we had Chinese uh, money raisers that fled the country when they be, when they got under investigation. You, know, you have to be very careful. This is a very sophisticated, right. very sophisticated approach that I don't think we've really put our, our heads around. And I'd say there are people starting to look at it, including some folks here at Hoover and other places, to understand how the Chinese are trying to penetrate the United States um, through what seem to be benign investments or good works, right? Confucius centers, um, uh, these types of investments, um, you know, supporting research programs and the like, mm -hmm. um, buying in Hollywood, right? You know, where you know you never see a, a Hollywood movie that that criticizes the Chinese. So this is a um, this is this is something that's that is I think this is the next phase as we begin to see because China is now acting this way abroad and particularly right. here, which it was building up to do. Now we have to get aware of it and uh, become aware of it and figure out how we're going to respond. I am old enough, Michael, to remember in the 1980s the Japanese land rush on America and the Japanese with a very hot economy and money to burn coming in the United States and buying property, 
Hawaii, we can understand, but also in California. I think a Japanese individual or concern at one point opened the Pebble Beach Golf Course in California. They did. Uh, you hear anecdotally of stories of Chinese buying property in Los Angeles in particular. Um, do the Chinese want to buy in California and buy American property? Is it is there a sentimental attachment? Is it a sort of a status thing I've arrived? Or is it just good finances for them? No, it's keeping their money safe because they don't trust safe. it in mm -hmm. China. Um, there is a massive property buying spree, uh, not only in California, but in New York, in London, in other areas. I'd, I'd like to look whether it's going on, for example, even in a place like Tokyo, mm -hmm. um, where the Chinese elites are not confident in right. uh, the security and safety of, of their assets. And so they're, they're trying to offshore it. And we've, you know, you, you, when the Chinese stock market um, cratered in the summer of 2015, um, and suddenly everyone woke up to the idea that, wow, this, you know, there, there may be some problems in this economy. Mm -hmm. it, it cratered in part because of a massive capital flight problem that only accelerated after that, where China lost uh, at least a trillion dollars worth of of reserves fleeing the country and a lot of this was not just investors saying okay i want to find a safe haven it was people in china saying right. politically i don't feel safe and i want to get my money out it's the same reason that the chinese elites have foreign passports and why they send their kids to stanford and harvard and yale and all and oxford and all these other places so they get them out of the country and then they buy them properties and so you're you're giving yourself uh an escape route um so uh, it, it makes sense, obviously, for the Chinese to buy here, but it's really driven, I think, in large part by what's going on uh, at home. The difference between the Japanese in the 80s and the Chinese, the Japanese were very, the Japanese were really looking for trophies, right? And it was Japanese, it wasn't individuals as much as it was, you know, investment consortium. So they bought Pebble Beach, they bought Rockefeller Center, right. you know, they bought these, the, they bought MCA, they bought these huge, you know, these huge, um, these huge trophies, and almost all of it failed for them. Uh, the Chinese are different. They're much more sophisticated in the companies that they try to buy. They're more sophisticated in where they try to buy. And then there's this other element we've been talking about, which are the elite individuals basically trying to offshore their money. Mm -hmm. Let's talk for a minute, Michael, about the Chinese students coming to America. And let's say it's a Chinese daughter and a Chinese son. And the Chinese son goes to Stanford, and the Chinese daughter goes to USC in Los Angeles. And they find that rather than burning up their cell phone talking to each other, there's a very convenient way to talk to each other, and it's called the WhatsApp. You get on WhatsApp, and you can communicate, you can text and talk. They then go back to China, and they discover what? The Chinese government has pretty much largely blocked WhatsApp in their home country. What is going to happen to those kids who go back to a communist regime and find out that the liberties that they've enjoyed in the United States, specifically Internet access and communications, are being clamped down upon? Well, they have they have liberties in China. They have a, a giant app. WhatsApp here is is uh, just one you know one smaller part of that that social media um, universe in China. There's something called WeChat, which mm -hmm. sort of wraps it all up together, as far as I understand these things. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, WhatsApp, email, all of it, as well as online shopping. It's gigantic. Everyone uses it. And China has leapfrogged into the digital economy. Most people don't use cash anymore. Uh, and last time I was in China earlier this year, no one would take my credit cards. You know, it's all QR coded on your iPhone, and it goes directly. And you oh. know, every there's a QR code on everything, wow. and it goes into your iPhone, and it goes into that WeChat, and that portal is both a um, a banking portal and an online e-commerce portal. Uh, and there is there is a lot of freedom in that 
way for uh, these Chinese young people. Um, can they search everything? No. So the, the boundaries that the state puts are on the political issues, on issues such as Xinjiang and uh, Xinjiang and Tibet and the like. Uh, and so it's it's um, they understand and try to evade where those boundaries are, but it's not that they don't have access. Um, the other thing about this, of course, is that it, so there's 800,000 Chinese studying here, 800,000 Chinese students studying here. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I wouldn't say all of them because I, I haven't looked at the numbers and we don't know, but a large percentage of that group come from elite families. These are vetted families. You know, you can't get the exit visa unless you've been approved. So mm -hmm. if this is some sort of rabble rouser uh, or democracy activist, they're probably not let out of the country unless they want them out to leave, right? These are people who come from families with uh, a stake in the system, even if their confidence in that system is faltering, which is why they're studying here, why they're buying property. Right. They still have a stake in that system. Mm -hmm. These are not the kids who are going to go back and suddenly make China democratic. Right. I think that's the great fallacy. We consider that, you know, they're going to come here. They're going to see all of our freedoms and how we live and we choose to live our lives. And they're going to go back and demand the same thing in China. Right. And I don't think that's the case. Uh, and, in fact, I think we have a lot of evidence that it's not the case. And it's the same thing that we've encountered with other groups uh, coming over here and studying. They don't go back to, to, to change their country right. uh, in, in, in terms of our norms and values. Maybe technocratically they do. And what we know is that a lot of these Chinese students are being trained here in our top institutions, uh, being trained in technology and science and whatever it is, and then taking that back to China. Uh, but they're not taking back John Stuart Mill and Thomas Paine. WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. Okay. Facebook founded by Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg, who is studying Chinese intensively, as yeah. I understand, and has visions of re uh, entering the Chinese market. Does the Chinese government see Mark Zuckerberg as a friend or a foe? I think they see everyone as a um, as a potential tool for strengthening China. Now look not, at Google. Not a disruptor, but potentially a benefit. Well, Google could have been a disruptor, but Google self-censored to get into the China market. Okay. And I'm sure Facebook will do the same. Um, the Chinese this year have cracked down uh, really pretty fully on VPNs, virtual private networks, so you can't evade firewalls. Mm -hmm. um, it's harder for them. There's, there's something called microblogging in, uh, or microtweeting in, um, in China. It's, it's very short, quick uh, bursts that just sort of disappear. Apparently, I, I'm not sure I understand this kind completely. Like sounds like Snapchat, kind of. Yeah, I don't yeah. use any of these. I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little bit more analog in a digital age, so I don't really know. But, but they, it gets out into the ether, right. and yet it's not, you know, sort of findable uh, at any one right. point. I mean, anyway, the government tries to um, uh, government tries to crack down on all of these things. Um, certainly data storage information and the like, you know, there's there, we, we assume there are links directly back into the government. So um, I, I, don't, I don't think Facebook's more powerful than China. You know, mm -hmm. we may be proved wrong, in which case we really do live in a different world where the nation state no longer controls um, what goes on inside of its borders. But so far, the Chinese have been very, very sophisticated in building what is I think, you know, certainly what I experienced, by far the world's most advanced digital social media, however you want to call it, infrastructure, this new world order we live in, and yet almost entirely separating it off from the world. Um, but when you've got a billion three people, you can do that. You know, you've got that scale. It wouldn't work in a smaller country. So if Zuckerberg wants to get in there, um, I would be 
surprised if Facebook's able to change China. You know, no one's ever been able to change China. China changes itself. In fact, the, the, one of the first books I read by uh, my former colleague at uh, Yale, uh, Yale's history department, Jonathan Spence, his first book was actually called To Change China, which was a story of the Western missionaries who went over to China in the 19th century. We've been trying to change China since Marco Polo. Mm -hmm. Never going to happen. If Zuckerberg can do it, then we got a whole different thing to worry about. Right. You know, we have thought that Coca-Cola might change China. We've thought that Michael Jordan might change China. We've thought that Apple might change China. And right, China seems to decide to change itself. And yet China changes. Right. I mean, we're not saying China doesn't change, but China changes in its own way. It changes in its own patterns, its own logic. Uh, no one dictates to China how to change. Uh, certainly not now. Right. You know, that, that's what they called the century of shame began with the Opium War, it ended with the Chinese Revolution. That is what modern China is all about, mm -hmm. is ensuring that no one ever tells China how to change. And if Mark Zuckerberg is, is going to be different somehow from Google, uh, I'd, I'd be very surprised. It may happen, but I wouldn't put money on it. We've got about 10 minutes left, so let's get into two things coming up on the calendar. First, the Communist Party meets next month. Is China still a communist nation? Uh, the National Party Congress meets every five years. It's the most uh, it's the most important meeting because it sets the uh, the leadership. It sort of rotates out the old members and puts in the new members. It's particularly important now because of Xi Jinping, uh, who the current president, who many first of all has become the most powerful leader in at least a quarter century, uh, or at least twenty years since Deng Xiaoping, maybe since Mao. I mean, he's 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 not Mao. He's not murdering fifty million of his own people, but he is potentially as powerful as Mao. And there's a lot of thought that he might not want to step down after his second five-year term, which will begin this October. Um, so that that's the importance of this, is that we may be seeing, and I will get to your question, we may be seeing um, a, 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 um, an, a moment of real change in China that we haven't seen for a very long time, which is the breakdown of collective leadership and really the the de facto reinstitution of one-man rule. And, and the question is, how far does it go and what does it mean? What does it mean for economic reform and all the security questions we've talked about? Uh, in terms of, of communism, you, look, you know, communism in China began changing long ago, a quarter century ago. You know, Deng Xiaoping's reforms started in 1978. They were really rebooted in 1992. And he talked about socialism or communism with a Chinese face or socialism with Chinese characteristics. It's always been different. Uh, than what we think of. It's certainly not orthodox Marxism, Leninism. And in China, it's an amalgam, uh, as, it, as it has been for some time, of Marxism, Leninism, socialism, you know, of course, indigenous Chinese thought, whether you, you know, identify it as Neo-Confucianism mm -hmm. uh, or the legalists or whomever. It's all designed to strengthen the state. Um, this is not about creating a worker's paradise. It's about, uh, it's about the people... Uh, as a family and the state, uh, it's about um, the, you know, the eradication as much as possible of intermediary centers or mm -hmm. layers of society between the state and right. the people, which is what all totalitarian systems do. Um, so is it communist? Look, they call themselves communist. I'm happy to call them communist. Is it, mm -hmm. is it Lenin's communism? No. Is it Stalin's? No. Um, but it is, it is certainly... Um, a, a system that, even as it faces great challenges, has also surmounted challenges that no one thought it could. Okay. Second event on the calendar, Donald Trump will travel across the Pacific Ocean to the ASEAN conference, and I believe there is a trip to China planned, if I'm not mistaken. 
There is, as far as I understand, a trip to China and Japan. Right. I uh, wouldn't be surprised to see him go to Korea if he can fit it in. Um, so he will sit down and he will have a one-on-one with Xi Jinping, we presume. Which he already had. Which yeah, he had, of course he'll do he'll, that. He'll yeah. do another one. Here's the question, Michael. Doing so on Chinese turf. Yeah. If diplomacy is a dance, if you will, who leads in this dance? And if we look at it from the Chinese perspective, we know what we want out of the Chinese. We want help in fixing the North Korean problem. What does China want out of us? Well, China wants us to um, not put pressure on China. They don't want economic they don't want a trade war. They don't want economic sanctions against their banks or their individuals. Uh, they don't want trade-related actions. Uh, they'd like to see the U.S. military um, be reduced in the region. Um, there's a lot of things they want, most of which they're not going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, every president goes. Clinton went. Bush went. Obama went. Um, Trump will go. It, it's just you have to you have to do it. Right. Um, arguably, it's the second most powerful nation on earth. I think probably inarguably it is. Some may say arguably it's the most powerful nation on earth. So the president's going to go. I think the bigger question is what does he bring to the table? Um, does he really have a clear plan, um, or does he feel he's starting to get that Chinese cooperation? I would I would you know be more skeptical. I think they should look very carefully at it. Um, I think the most important thing is he's got to draw some lines about, you know, not to say Chinese will accept it, but, you know, what, what we sort of expect from the Chinese, you know, in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, vis-a-vis North Korea uh, and the like. I think the days, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the days where we thought we were going to build this new strategic partnership, a G2, those are over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you don't hear people in Washington talk about that anymore. They're right. not sort of self-deluding that China, again, just to pick up where we were, that China's going to change the way we want it to. The whole, you know, the Kissingerian, where we bring it into the world system and it ultimately adopts the, some of those norms. If it doesn't fully democratize, it liberalizes in some ways and it acts as, as liberal nations do outside of its own borders. And we realize it's not going to. And there are real challenges that Trump has to figure out how to deal with. Mm-hmm. The one belt, one road may be crazily oversold, a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure, never going to happen. But it's serious. It's real. And countries are buying in. The AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, pe- every nation in the world except the United States and Japan have gone in on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's got to figure out how to maintain uh, our position, our role, our alliances and partnerships and the institutions we've built against what is a, is actually a pretty you know, forward-leaning Chinese challenge. And you saw that at the Davos speech right. that Xi Jinping gave earlier this year where he said, the torch has been passed, you know. I mean, no one no one could fully believe it, you know, when he said we uphold freedom of, uh, you know, free trade and all this stuff. Uh, but, but Trump can't just go, I think, and sort of talk about how things are good. He's really got to give a vision as to why the liberal order that he talks about mm-hmm. Um, which is not just the pure liberal internationalist order, but that order of sovereign states looking out for their own interests, but cooperating in many ways to provide stability and prosperity and security is the right way forward because China has a different view of all that. So let's let's be blunt. Let's put this in blunt terms about carrots and sticks. So what carrots can Donald Trump present to Xi Jinping? What sticks? And from the Chinese perspective, what carrots and sticks do they have? Well, I think in a lot of ways they've they've gotten what they want out of the U.S., uh, I think there are probably more sticks that Trump can bring, which is what he's hinted at, you know, um, trade actions, uh, the 301 uh, designation, um, uh, unilateral sanctions, um, higher tariffs. There's a lot of sticks he can threaten. The Chinese will 
tell us how believable that is. They say that, you know, we're more at risk than they are, which I don't really think is the case, but, you know, they, they figure we're going to blink first. You know, carrots are hard. We've given the Chinese almost all the carrots uh, in the patch, wherever we get carrots from. Uh, you know, we've really, we've given them almost everything. We've put them into all these these international institutions. Um, we've raised them to the highest level of diplomatic uh, engagement. Um, you know, you could, th there's there's very tactical carrots to say, okay, we're going to drop the, the 301 investigation and we're definitely not going to do sanctions. Those are more tactical carrots, but in terms of big strategic carrots, I mean, we've, we've given them all away. I think it's the, the question of how credible are your sticks. And as for the Chinese, it's, it's, it's sort of the same. They, can't, they know they can't disengage from our economy. They, right. can't stop, uh, they can't sell our securities that they hold. No one's who's going to buy them. They're sort of trapped. They get that. Um, the, the carrots they give are, are, I think, sort of carrot futures, if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. which are we're going to act better. We're going to help. We're going to give you a little bit of help on North Korea. And then we find out that it's not nearly as much as we thought. Um, I would say they are hesitant on sticks. They don't, they don't threaten as much. I think they're still a little leery of that. Um, they don't want to be called out. So it, it's interesting. It's more that they promise stuff that they don't deliver. And we, um, and we threaten things that we are never really going to do. So the two are, are sort of passing ships in the night in some ways. Final question. It's a big question, but a final question. Let's talk about the Auslan standard for dealing with China and getting Chinese cooperation on North Korea and then the Chinese-U.S. relationship. When you see Trump meet with Xi Jinping, what is the Oslin standard for progress? What do you measure this by? What would you like to see come out of it? What is a realistic expectation for when well, they meet? Well, I think that's the real question. What is realistic at this point? And um, I, I think to the degree we can, we keep them on board with these new sanctions and these enhanced sanctions. Um, we we uh, do our best to monitor them and, and, and see and try to figure out how or if they are evading them. And then uh, we certainly keep on the table the threat of secondary sanctions against more banks uh, and the like. But I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, Bill, I, I, you know, I think we've, we've done this dance so many times with the Chinese that there's, there's really, it, it's hard to expect much, much more. You know, um, they're very dug in uh, in the South China Sea um, they're not relinquishing claims in the East China Sea. We've gotten no progress on all that stuff, uh, whether it's been sort of our input or they've been doing it with the countries that they have problems with over the past decade. Um, they've, they've come out, as we were talking about earlier, with this full sort of set of institutional alternatives to what we've built, uh, and those aren't going away either. They may collapse of their own weight, but they're not going to negotiate them away or bargain them away. I think we're at a point where the areas of cooperation between China and the United States are increasingly limited. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean it has to be straight-up conflict, though I think we are heading more in that direction where we really have – we. I mean, we do have different views, different visions of what we want. Um, but the areas of, of cooperation to me seem to be increasingly narrowed, mm -hmm. uh, which is why we have to work on partners. We have to work on getting different types of communities together to the degree that the Chinese feel that they are being isolated by their support for North Korea, which we really haven't done, or their stance in the South China Sea. That's possibly a way to get them cha to change their right. behavior. But again, they figure that as the global superpower, as the hegemon, we are risk averse. And so that gives them a great deal of latitude to do things in their interest before it even rises to the level of us paying attention. Um, and so it's really how they feel they can get away with things vis-a-vis -vis the other countries mm -hmm. 
rather than it's sort of a direct China-U.S.-Beijing-Washington clash right. over something. But you're not buying that line from the movie of the party. We'll be we'll be at war with China in thirty odd years. I don't I I don't think so. Um, I think in thirty odd years China is going to actually wind up being a lot weaker than it is today. This may be the high tide of China. We may come back in five or ten years and be talking about well, when China was so powerful, circa 2015, 2017, mm -hmm. and now it really doesn't have that same power to either do the economic things it wants or even have the type of security posture that it seems to be building. We're, we're still in a period of inertia. Mm -hmm. What it's built has carried it forward. But we may be nearing the high tide of Chinese in, uh, influence, not that it's going to recede entirely. It's not going away, and it will be important. But we may view it differently and perhaps be a little less worried because China is going to be more focused internally than externally. Good stuff. Michael Oslin, Hoover Research Fellow, and today you pitched both ends of a doubleheader to podcast. Thanks for sitting in. I sure to enjoy the conversations. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, tell your friends about us. Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Michael Oslin and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Michael Oslin is also on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at Michael Oslin. You spell that at M-I-C-H-A-E-L-A-U-S-L-I-N. And while you're at it, hop over to Amazon and grab a copy of his terrific book, The End of the Asian Century, War Stagnation, and the Risk of the World's Most Dynamic Region. Michael, anything else you'd like to plug while we've got you here? I think you covered it all, Bill. Terrific. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.